city Rambling around your town I never see a friend I know As I go rambling around Boys, as I go rambling around My sweetheart and my parents I left in my old hometown I'm out to do the best I can As I go rambling around Boys, as I go rambling around Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Davis School of Medicine in Sacramento, California, bringing you another one of these flashcard podcasts for you to enjoy and hopefully review a little bit of material for the practice of medicine, step one, step two, and whatever else you're up to there. I should warn you that I am in my recording studio, which is my garage, and so if you hear a car, pickup truck, Amazon truck, or large dump truck go by periodically, that's because of my location. Um, No sound studio is Abbey Road, I guess. So we're going to do some bugs today. And this is a six-year-old girl who became ill 24 hours after eating an undercooked hamburger at a local fast food restaurant. Her symptoms began with abdominal cramping and watery diarrhea and then progressed to bloody diarrhea. Her condition lasted about a week and then resolved. Stool culture grew sorbitol-negative colonies and serotype analysis revealed the presence of you guessed it, E. coli O157H7. All right, a couple things before I give you a little background on E. coli O157H7. Uh, there's some key words in there that you should immediately jump to if you get a question like this on step one or step two. The first one is undercooked hamburger. Actually, that's two words, but we'll count it as one. Undercooked hamburger. And then the second is bloody diarrhea, which is also two words, but we'll count it as one. So undercooked hamburger, bloody diarrhea, the first or one of the first things that should pop into your head is E. coli O157H7. And by the way, the O and the H refer to serotypes on this bacterium. All right, let's do a little background investigation. Uh, This is enterohemorrhagic. Escherichia coli, or EHEC, E-H-E-C for short. It's a gram-negative rod and E. coli serotype O157H7. And if you're like me, you'll sometimes have trouble remembering which comes first, the H7 O157, or is it O7H157? But the way I remember it is O, the longer number is first, 157, followed by the shorter, H7. I have a really strange mind in that sense, and many others. Uh, Etiology and epidemiology. Transmission is through ingestion of contaminated food 
and water. Outbreaks have occurred from a wide variety of sources, including undercooked hamburger. Remember the jack-in-the-box syndrome? That was one of the f that was probably the first place this was described in the United States. I actually took care of a woman during that initial reportage um, who was traveling around with her husband. They had just recently retired and they had a large mobile home they'd purchased and unfortunately while or just after eating in a fast food hamburger place in the northwest um, where they were visiting she developed hemorrhagic diarrhea, went on to develop actually HUS and died from it. It was horribly sad actually, one of my most memorable patients. Um, really, really um, fantastic family. Anyway, uh, it can also happen from not only undercooked hamburger but also unpasteurized apple juice and contaminated water in swimming pools and water parks. EHEC infections require a very small infectious dose that can be as low as 10 to 100 organisms. Clinical manifestations include hemorrhagic colitis, which can then progress to hemolytic uremic syndrome, as I mentioned for my patient. So the pathogenesis uh, is always complicated in these cases, but the major virulence factor of EHEC is a Shiga-like toxin carried by lysogenic bacteriophage. So that may be a question you get hit with is, you know, the relationship of a Shiga-like toxin to a bacterium. And again, you should think of O157H7. The Shiga toxin targets and cleaves 28S RNA, resulting in an inhibition of protein synthesis and cell death. EHEC adhere to colonic epithelial cells and secrete toxin that is absorbed by the host cell. Destruction of glomerular endothelial cells results in acute kidney failure and hemolytic uremic syndrome, also known as HUS. So laboratory diagnosis, EHEC can be differentiated from other E. coli by its inability to ferment sorbitol. Toxin genes can be, de be detected by polymerase chain reaction and or hybridization. Serotype identification is based on O and H antigens. So the treatment and prevention infections are treated with supportive measures and antibiotics are generally not used to the point where I'd say clinically we really try very hard to avoid them in this situation. Antibiotics have not been shown to alter the disease course and may actually increase the risk for the development of HUS. Think about it as you're like cleaving those, killing those bacteria or inhibiting those bacteria, they're releasing the toxin and it's making uh, things worse than when you started. Prevention involves proper food handling and hand hygiene. All right, so very important one to know, the EHEC gram-negative rod E. coli serotype O157H7. All right, next uh, little scenario for you here, two-week-old bottle-fed infant living in a rural area of southern Mexico exhibits a prolonged course of watery diarrhea. The infant becomes severely dehydrated and dies. It is suspected that the infant formula was prepared using contaminated water. Okay, so what's this uh, two-week-old have? This is a very, very important one to know because it is still a major killer of children all over the planet. 
Yeah, so this is enteropathogenic uh, and enteroaggregative uh, E. coli. So uh, EPAC for short, or EAC, E-A-E-C. Uh, these are gram-negative rods. Both EPAC and EAC are associated with infant diarrhea, especially in developing countries. And I believe they changed the name for this. It used to be called enterotoxigenic E. coli. Um, so EPAC. Watery diarrhea often accompanied by vomiting. EPAC attachment to enterocytes of the small intestine stimulates a host cell actin rearrangement resulting in pedestal formation, destruction of microvilli, and decreased fluid absorption referred to as attachment and effacement pathogenesis. EAC, E-A-E-C, possesses adherence factors that result in large aggregates and a mucus biofilm that blocks absorption by enterocytes of the small intestine, causing persistent watery diarrhea. Fluid replacement is important to prevent dehydration. Diarrheal disease is best prevented by avoiding improperly cooked food and contaminated water. And remember, uh, one of the biggest lifesavers in the history of medicine was oral rehydration therapy, which is this remarkably easy thing to make with some sugar and salt, etc. Um, and you get obligate uh, water absorption with uh, simple sugars and such. Uh, actually, worked with the professor who figured that out at Case Western Reserve University of Medicine. Uh, anyway, but if you have IVs, you're going to use IV fluids, of course. But on a shelf exam or on a step exam, uh, the option may be oral rehydration therapy, which is the way to go. You don't need an IV to um, potentially treat the child. Next case, case number three. One day after enjoying the dinner last night on a cruise ship. Uh-oh. Why do cruise ships always turn out to be these bad things in these cases? They can be really pleasant places to travel. <laughs> uh, anyway, returning from the Pacific coast of Mexico, a 60-year-old man exhibits abdominal cramping, diarrhea, fever, chills, and malaise. The diarrhea contains blood and mucus. A stool sample is sent to the laboratory for analysis. Preliminary results from the laboratory report only lactose fermenting colonies from the stool. Lactose fermenting colonies. All right, so just with all this mucus and fever, you immediately know this is going to be a more invasive type of E. coli, and this is enteroinvasive E. coli, or EIEC. That's E I E C, E I E C for short, enteroinvasive E. coli. It's a gram-negative rod, of course, like all these little critters we're talking about today. Uh, etiology and epidemiology, it's rare in the United States, as most often associated with disease in developing countries. The clinical manifestations are dysentery. So pathogenesis, EIEC, attaches and invades colonic epithelial cells, resulting in cell death and inflammation. Disease process is very similar to that of Shigella. Treatment and prevention. Disease is self-limiting. Disease is best prevented by avoiding improperly cooked food and contaminated water. All right, so simply don't get it. Um, it's the way to prevent it, I guess. 
number four here. Two days after eating undercooked chicken. All right, there you go. There's your two words, undercooked chicken, or maybe even just chicken. A 30-year-old fast food manager starts to exhibit abdominal pain, cramping, diarrhea, and nausea. He goes to his family doctor, where a stool sample is collected and sent to the laboratory for analysis and culture. Microscopic examination reveals fecal leukocytes. Preliminary culture results identify several lactose non-fermenting colonies consisting of organisms that are motile and produce H sub 2S. The patient is treated for symptoms without antibiotics. So what's this patient got? Yeah, we're still on those gram-negative rods. So this is Salmonella enterica. <laughs> it's been a long day. Uh, Salmonella enterica, formerly known as Salmonella cholericeus, whatever. Um, anyway, uh, it's a gram-negative rod. It is a lactose non-fermenter. So Salmonella Enterica has thousands of different serotypes. Serotypes are common flora in a wide variety of different animals, especially reptiles. Think of those iguanas, you know, they um, visit your kids at school and such, or visited you when you were a child in preschool. What was crawling on those iguanas? Poultry and birds. Raw chicken eggs may harbor S. Enterica initially in the egg white, although most eggs are not infected. Human infection results from contact with infected animals or ingestion of contaminated animal products. Fecal oral transmission in food handlers ew, is facilitated by the fact that salmonella can be shed in human stool for weeks after resolution of diarrheal disease. A moderate infectious dose about 100,000 organisms is needed to establish disease. Think of that in the context of O157H7 and how you only needed 10 to 100 organisms um, to establish disease. So the clinical manifestations, uh, salmonella infection generally results in an uncomplicated dysentery microscopically characterized by erythrocytes and leukocytes in the stools. Some very virulent strains can invade the bloodstream, causing endotoxin-mediated sepsis. I have seen that. Pathogenesis, in fact, I've seen that a bunch of times. Pathogenesis, salmonella bind to intestinal M, as in Mary, cells, where they mediate endocytosis. Once internalized, the bacteria replicate in the endosomes and eventually penetrate into the subepithelial tissue, stimulating an inflammatory response. Although most strains remain localized, some strains can penetrate further and enter the bloodstream, thus the uh, endotoxin-mediated sepsis. So laboratory diagnosis, salmonella can be easily isolated from stool cultures on common selective and differential media due to their inability to ferment lactose. Remember, they're non-lactose ferment, they're sorry, they're lactose non-fermenters. H2S production and motility distinguish salmonella from other lactose non-fermenters such as Shigella. So treatment and prevention, 
Fluid replacement is essential for any diarrheal disease. Antibiotics are generally not used for salmonella enteritis because it can prolong the carrier state. Prevention involves proper food handling and adequate hand washing. This is, I must be honest, a situation where I usually give our infectious disease folks a ring on the phone and describe the situation. Hey, young woman was cooking with raw chicken, got sick, is got salmonella growing out of her stool, uh, and she's getting better. Um, they usually will not um, recommend antibiotics unless the patient has a complicated medical course otherwise. And then it's up for debate, I think, at least in my experience. But something we do see, it's not an uncommon disease. Last case for you for this session, a 46-year-old woman just returned from a one-week-long vacation in Central America. Two days after her return, she develops headache, fever, abdominal pain, and constipation. Now, please notice there I said headache, fever, abdominal pain, and constipation. I didn't say diarrhea. So you have to be careful with this one if you get this on a on a test question or see it in real life. Over the next week, her fever increases and the woman becomes increasingly ill. A blood culture is positive for salmonella typhi. And by the way, I think they are calling that something else now, subtype typhi or something like that. She has started on a course of ceftriaxone. Her fever lasts another seven days and then gradually improves. Okay, so what she got, well, you kind of already know because she grew salmonella typhi out of her blood. And by the way, if you want to read a more in-depth case describing this, um, there is a most excellent publication in the Journal of General Internal Medicine from approximately last year. If you search my name and Journal of General Internal Medicine and typhoid fever, perhaps you will... Um, be hooked in and read that article if you can get access to it at your institutions. So the organism and physical characteristics, this is Salmonella typhi, which is one of seven serovars of S. enterica subspecies enterica. It's a gram-negative rod, what we've been doing today. The only reservoir for S. typhi is humans. Infection occurs after ingestion of contaminated food or water. Individuals can become chronic carriers, shedding bacteria in stool for months to years, therefore serving as endemic reservoirs. Think of typhoid Mary, classic hostess um, with this disease and shudder. Clinical manifestations, salmonella typhi is the causative agent of typhoid fever, as mentioned previously. Disease starts with gastrointestinal symptoms, which, by the way, can be with brief bout of diarrhea, but sometimes it starts with constipation. Kind of weird, right? And progresses to systemic disease. Fever can last three to four weeks. Salmonella typhi has two major virulence factors. VI and antiphagocytic polysaccharide antigen and endotoxin. As with other salmonella, S. typhi invades intestinal M cells, replicates its endosomes, and is transported to the subepithelial layer. If 
I had like a transporter sound like in Star Trek, I would play that right now, but I don't. Here they are engulfed by macrophages, survive, and enter the lymphatics and blood. Replication in spleen and liver leads to continuous release of organisms into the bloodstream. The carrier state is characterized by colonization of what organ? The gallbladder, that's right. I think this is such an interesting disease, personally, but again, I'm strange. Laboratory diagnosis, S. typhi can be isolated from blood cultures in the first and second weeks of illness. So treatment and prevention, a variety of antibiotics can be used to control the course of infection, including ampicillin, acephalosporin, such as ceftriaxone, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or a fluoroquinolone, namely ciprofloxacin. Please be warned, however, that this is my little diatribe here. Uh, the patients coming from Southwest Asia, namely India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, that area of the world, frequently have salmonella typhi that's resistant to ciprofloxacin. So you've really got to go with an alternative choice. I, I think you can actually use a macrolide, if I remember correctly. Um, if they're in the hospital, you could give them intravenous ceftriaxone. Anyway, just, just to warn you, if you're seeing a patient like that in clinic, the choice, if they're coming from certain areas of the world, is not Cipro. So this is a little dated, this information. Prevention involves proper sanitation, carriers not handling food, and vaccines against the VI. It might be V1, I don't know, polysaccharide. All right, so remember that disease, enteric or typhoid fever. It's so fascinating, and I encourage you to look up that JGM, Journal of General Internal Medicine article, approximately 2009 publication date. Uh, Dr. Lisa Winston, last senior author. Dr. Donna Williams, second author. Can't remember who else was on there. Oh, and me. All right, have a great day. It's been really fun. Uh, snowing you with these gram-negative rods. See you soon. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. I went a walk in that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway Saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps To the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts All around me a voice was sounding This land was made for you and me When the sun comes shining then I was strolling And the wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling voice was chanting as the fog was lifting This land was made for you and me 
This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust clouds rolling, and the voice coming chanting, and the fog was lifting. This land was made for you and me.